This is the podcast for RUF at the University of Texas. A community for students to experience God's grace and express God's grace to others. For more information, visit www.ruf.org slash UT. Or find us on Instagram at TexasRUF. Hey, y'all. My name is Jordan, and I want to welcome you tonight to RUF. Thank y'all for texting Stephen. He just texted me and said he feels boosted. So there you go. Um, I guess that means it was encouraging to him in bro terms. Uh, So um, what is RUF? Uh, RUF is a community of students, and we are learning how to love. We're learning how to love God, and we're learning how to love one another, and ultimately we're learning how to love the university because we believe that God has first loved us. And so here's what we do. We meet in this room on Wednesday nights, and then we meet for small groups throughout the week all over campus, and then we meet one-on-one for lunch, for coffee, to go on walks together, to play golf together, in order to remind... It's always something. Uh, In order to remind one another of God's love, in order that uh, we might... This, tonight's multiple things. Uh, whether we might remind one another of God's love, so we might rest in his love. Nice. Okay. Good. And then reflect his love out into the world. It's all the R things that we say. Good. Um, and so uh, that's why uh, this semester, we're spending an entire semester talking about love. Right? We're calling our sermon series Learning to Love, because each and every week we're asking, how do I learn to love? I mean, how do I become a better lover in all these different relationships in which God has placed me? And and so far in our series, uh, we've been a little optimistic, right? I mean, we've talked about uh, the importance of love and and the priority of love and how much God loves us, as well as our deep human desire for love. But tonight, even though it's Valentine's RUF, we need to be a little bit realistic and we need to name how difficult love really is, okay? Okay. And so tonight we're going to look at the enemy of love, the enemy of love. So uh, my wife and I have been watching this new HBO series called The Last of Us. Have any of you been watching this? Uh, So it begins on a casual Friday night in Austin, Texas, actually, in the year 2003, uh, when this deadly fungus starts to spread and eventually infects 99% of the world's population and wipes everyone out. And um, some of you guys in Callaway, if you don't shower sometime soon, this might happen to you as well. Um, But uh, what makes the fungus terrifying in this show is not just that if you get it, you die, but it's also, that was funny, y'all can laugh, all right. Uh, It's also, not only if you get it, will you die, but if you get it, the the infected, those infected by, by the fungus become killers. And, and so uh, the infected run around like zombies trying to bite other people and, and feast on their flesh. So does anyone want to come over and watch it with us? It's really fun. Um, but when you read the Bible, it actually describes something very similar. Because the story of the Bible is that though the world was created good, something has invaded our world and infected us. And it has made us into people who do not naturally love but actually naturally use one another and feast on one another. Uh, we, we do not love, but we use and we feast on one another. And this thing is called sin, but at the root of almost every sin is something called pride. And pride is the enemy of love. 
Pride is the enemy of love. And so we need to spend a whole night tonight talking about pride, okay? Because this is what makes it so hard for us to love. So I want us to see three things about pride tonight. First, the, the definition of pride. Second, the destructiveness of pride. And then finally, third, the defeat of pride. The definition of pride, the destructiveness of pride, and then finally, the, the defeat of pride. Now, a lot of this tonight uh, is coming from C.S. Lewis uh, and Tim Keller. Okay, so first, the definition of pride. So looking back at this passage uh, that Courtney read for us, we see that the Pharisee in this story that Jesus tells is infected with pride. So what do we mean when we say pride? Well, usually when we think of pride, uh, we think of someone who thinks highly of themselves, right? Uh, so, you, you know, you imagine someone who's cocky or, you know, someone who, like, wears a tank top at the gym to, like, show off their muscles. Or maybe someone who shows off how smart they are in class by, like, the way they answer the question, right? Um, and this is half true. Pride is, it's halfway people who think highly of themselves. But you can also be prideful and think lowly of yourself. Because pride isn't merely thinking highly of yourself. It's thinking of yourself, period, I mean, pride ultimately is self-centeredness and self-absorption. I mean, and pride, someone who's prideful is like the dude on the basketball team who always needs the ball, right? I mean, you're a black hole and you're sucking everything into you and everything is about you. And this is what we see with the Pharisee tonight. Everything is about him. I mean, because listen again to the way he talks. Verse 11, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I mean, now this is a man who has gone into the temple to, quote, pray, and yet when he opens his mouth, what he ends up doing is just reciting to God all these accomplishments and all these things that he has done. He has pride. And this is the deal with anyone infected with pride. I will always be their favorite word. And so whether they're thinking highly of themselves or lowly of themselves, they're thinking about themselves. And y'all, you need to know that everything in our world, and especially everything in college, is training us in pride. I mean, college is the school of pride. It is the school of pride because everything about college is teaching you and training you and conditioning you towards self-centeredness and self-absorption. I mean, think about it. You're on your own for the first time. No more parents. No more siblings. And so you're learning to look at everything in your life and ask, what's in it for me? What's best for me? So, should I do this major or that major? Well, what's best for me? Should I do this this summer or do that this summer? Well, what will be best for me? Should I be friends with this person? How does it benefit me? Should I go to REF tonight? Maybe. What's in it for me? Should I go to church on Sunday? Maybe. What's in it for me? Should I read my Bible today? Maybe. What's in it for me? Everything is filtered through this question of how does it benefit me? That is college. And here's the deal with pride. As long as you don't have to be in a relationship with anyone, you can actually get away with it. It's kind of fun. It's all about you. But the second you start getting into relationships, right, whether it's a relationship with a roommate, a relationship with a boyfriend, a relationship with a girlfriend, a relationship with a spouse, that's when you start to get in trouble, and that's when things start to go wrong. So let's look at that now at point two, the destructiveness of pride. The destructiveness. I have a cold tonight. Bear with me. 
So uh, as you all know, Tom Brady just retired, or at least we think he retired. Uh, and even though that dude has won like everything there is to win, um, in the last year, he also lost a lot. Uh, think about this. Here's what one journalist writes. In the year 2022, here's what happened with Tom Brady. First, Brady began 2022 by botching the rollout of his first retirement announcement, and word of the announcement leaked before a Super Bowl in which he was not competing, which made him appear narcissistic and graceless. Then, he alienated his religiously devoted New England fans by failing to acknowledge them in his farewell letter. Then, 40 days later, he unretired, reportedly against the wishes of his family. Then, he was rumored to have gotten his Tampa Bay coach, Bruce Arians, kicked upstairs to a front office job. Basically, got his coach fired. Then he got separated and divorced from a supermodel wife who was manifestly unhappy with his decision to return to the field. Then he lost an estimated $93 million, which is kind of a lot, in crypto when the FTX exchange collapsed. Then he endured the first and only losing season of football in his entire life and a peremptory early playoff exit. I mean, the dude lost a lot. So yes, he lost a lot of money, and he lost a lot of games, and he lost a little bit of his clout and his prestige. But what's especially interesting and noticeable to me here is how he lost his relationships. I mean, he lost all of his fans, he lost his head coach, and he lost his wife. And friends, that's what happens with pride. I mean, it really does destroy our relationships. It destroys our marriage relationships, it destroys our dating relationships, our friendships, relationships with our roommates. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. He says, pride is spiritual cancer, and it eats up the very possibility of love. And we see this again in our passage. I mean, look at the Pharisee. I mean, look at his relationship with the tax collector here. What does he do? How does he treat him? Well, first of all, the Pharisee, we see, compares himself to the tax collector. We see comparison. And we see this in verse 11. He says, God, again, I thank you I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. What is he doing? He's comparing himself and measuring himself against all these other people, which I know that none of you ever do. Compare your life to other people. But here's the deal with pride. It's always competitive. Pride is always competitive. Again, as Lewis says, it's not about having a lot of money. It's about having more money than him. Or it's not about being prettier, having your looks, but it's about being prettier than her. If he or she didn't exist, you wouldn't care. It's competitive. It's about being better than, or being prettier than, or being smarter or richer than someone else. What else do we see? Well, second, the Pharisee, we see he keeps score. We see scorekeeping. We see this in verse 12. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So we see here that the Pharisee has been keeping track and keeping score of all of his accomplishments and the accomplishments of everyone else. So, we do this too. Uh, we do this with our accomplishments and with our sins. I've accomplished more than that person, or I haven't sinned as much as that person. I'm good because I prayed more than they did. Or, 
I'm not that bad because I only got drunk one night this past week. So uh, it's fine because he got drunk on Friday night and Thursday night and Tuesday like afternoon. Okay, so I'm good. Or, uh, you know, I know I shouldn't have gossiped about her yesterday. That was wrong. But, like, let's be honest. She gossips about people, like, all the time. It's comparison. It's scorekeeping. What else do we see? Third, the Pharisee distances himself from the tax collector. So we do see division and isolation. Look at verse 11. The Pharisee, we see, is standing by himself. Again, think about Tom Brady. He's all alone. The Pharisee's standing by himself. And friends, this is where pride always leads. You're better than everyone else. You're smarter than everyone else. You're richer than everyone else. But you're off all alone. You're better than other people. You're picky. No one's ever good enough to be your friend. You're defensive. You take everything personally. It's all about you. You feel like everyone's out to get you. Pride, again, it destroys relationships. It makes them really hard. And this is one of the reasons like, why when you go to college and you have to share a room with someone, right, and you have a roommate, sometimes it's pretty hard. Because, you know, you have two people who are both prideful. You have two people who both need the world to revolve around them, but there's only one world. There are two people, but there's only one world. Can't revolve around both. And this is what makes marriage hard. Same reason. Marriage is hard because you have two people who are prideful. They both need the world to revolve around them. But there's only one world to go around. It can't revolve around both of them. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we see any of the Pharisee in us? Do we see any of the Pharisee in us? Do we see comparison? Do we see scorekeeping? Do we see self-righteousness? Do we see contempt for other people? Do we see the way we isolate ourselves or remove ourselves from other people? If the answer is yes, then it means you've been infected and you have pride. But if you say no, then it might mean that you're actually more infected and more in trouble than if you had said yes. Because that's actually the most destructive thing about pride. When you have it, you can't see it. And the more you have it, the less you think you have it. And that means that pride is really hard to get rid of. So how do we do it? How do we defeat it? Point three, the defeat of pride. Okay, so turning back to the passage, we see that Jesus tells us what the opposite of pride is. He tells us. He says it's humility. Look at verse 14. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. And so we see that if the Pharisee here represents pride, the tax collector represents humility. And so what is humility? Well, as others have said, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. So again, we think pride means thinking highly of yourself. Humility means thinking lowly of yourself. No. Pride is self-absorption, and humility It's just self-forgetfulness. It's forgetting yourself. And friends, I mean, humility really is the key to love. It is the key. Two people in a relationship not thinking about themselves. See, but here's the problem. 
You can't become humble just by trying really hard to become humble. Because think about it. If you're thinking about how hard you're trying to not think about yourself, you're still thinking about yourself. And so it's self-defeating. You can't get humility just by trying hard. And so how do you get it? How do you get it? Well, I think two things. The path of humility comes from facing glory and then facing reality. Facing glory and facing reality. In the Bible, glory means weight. That is what the Hebrew word means. The Hebrew word for glory means weight. So someone who is glorious is someone who is weighty. And Tim Keller says that glory really is the only path to humility. Glory is the only path to humility. Here's how. Because the way you get humility is by seeing that someone you think the world of thinks the world of you. Let's say that again. Humility comes from seeing that someone that you think the world of thinks the world of you. I mean, pretend someone comes up to you and says, you're accepted, you're loved, you're beloved, you don't have to prove yourself, you don't have to obsess about yourself, you don't have to keep score of all your accomplishments anymore. I mean, whether you believe this message and whether it impacts you depends entirely on who the person is that is saying it, right? I mean, if your little brother or little sister comes up to you and says that, like, it won't mean anything to you. It won't have the, the, a great impact on your life. But what if someone that you respect, what if someone glorious comes to you and says that, right? I mean, I mean what, if, what, if, what if it's a king or a queen or a president or a professor or some celebrity you love, uh, like Zach Bryan or whatever, comes to you and says these amazing words about you? Uh, you good, dude? <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> so if one of these glorious people were to come to you and say, you're loved, you're accepted, you don't have to keep score, you don't have to obsess about yourself, you're free, then it matters. I mean, then it impacts you. Someone you think the world of thinks the world of you. And so now pretend that that person is God. I mean, pretend that God, who, who is full of glory and full of beauty and full of power and full of might, I mean, the person who made the world comes to you and says, uh, you're accepted and you're loved and you're beloved, and you don't have to prove yourself, and you don't have to compare, and you don't have to keep score. Then it changes everything. You don't have to think about yourself anymore. You don't have to compare yourself. You don't have to prove yourself. You're free to be humble. And this is what we see happening with the tax collector. He walks into where? He walks into the temple. I mean, he walks into the presence of God and what is the first word out of his mouth? God. I mean, this is a man who has faced glory. And so when he goes in to pray, he doesn't have to say me, 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 me. He just says God. But then, here's the flip side of that. When we face glory, we more and more face reality. When we face glory, we face reality. Because when you come into contact with someone who is truly glorious and truly beautiful and truly weighty, what happens? I mean, you immediately realize how small and sort of insignificant you are, right? 
So, I mean, you think you're good at basketball, and then you watch Sean Morant, right? Or you think you're a good artist, and then you, like, study Van Gogh or Da Vinci. You get to meet Taylor Swift backstage, and, like, you're completely undone. I mean, and this is what happens uh, to people in the Bible. Uh, an, an angel, not even God, but just someone sent from God, will show up in the Old Testament or show up in the Bible, and people are just completely undone. And this is what happens here. Look at the tax collector. He walks into the temple, he experiences glory, and he's undone. I mean, look how different he is from this Pharisee. Verse 13, it says he stands far off. He isolates himself, but not out of pride, but out of humility. He stands far off, he won't even look up, but he beats his breast and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I mean, friends, this is a man who has faced reality. In the light of God, he can see himself for what he really is, which is a sinner in need of God's mercy. He has faced glory and faced reality. In the process, he's found humility. Listen to C.S. Lewis one more time, where he describes his glory reality thing. He says, in God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. And unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison. You do not know God at all. If anyone wants to acquire humility, I can tell him the very first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. That's the first step, and it's a big step too. Nothing whatsoever can be done before it. If you think that you are not proud, it means that you are very proud indeed. Okay, so as we close, I want us to imagine what it would look like in our lives and in our relationships if humility began to take root in us. We can't force our way to humility. It only comes through God and facing the glory and facing reality. But if those things were to happen, what would humility look like in our lives and our relationships? Okay, here are a few things. First, it would mean you would lower your expectations. You would lower your expectations. Here's what I mean. Um, when you begin to realize that you're a sinful task collector in need of God's mercy and that everyone else is too, you'll stop being so hard on people. I mean, y'all, we're like so hard on people. We're talking about how toxic they are and how much they disappoint us and how much they've wronged us. We're keeping score. We've kept all, keep all their record of wrongs. But if you, as you learn humility, you stop asking other people to be perfect. You stop keeping score. You're able to forgive them. You don't have to resent them. You don't have to be constantly be disappointed by them. You don't have to assume the biggest problem in the relationship is always them. You're free. You're free to mess up. They're free to mess up. When they mess up, you can forgive them. When you mess up, you can say you're sorry. Everyone just lowers their expectations. Here's the second thing. As we more and more put on humility, uh, we'll experience less conflict and less division. Um, there's this term called the overview effect. And the idea with the overview effect, it, it was this term that this uh, person coined after astronauts went up into space. And, you know, from, you know, the 60s until the 80s, every time an astronaut would go up into space, they would talk about they get up to space and they were able to see the globe for the first time. They were seeing it's all right there and it had this profound effect on them, right? 
and they would talk about how, uh, you know, how small we are and how fragile our world is. And, and, and also this, that, that from, from, you know, up there, when you look down at the world, you're not able to actually see, like, where one country ends and the other country begins. These different borders and boundaries that we've set up, right? I mean, it's a little cheesy, but that is what happens again in light of God when we begin to see ourselves and other people for what we really are. That we are all broken and sinful people. I mean, there's a real unity in that. I mean, our, our sin and our neediness actually unites us. It's like in marriage. I mean, my marriage with Emily, in the times where it's really, when it's really working and it's really going well, it is the moments when both Emily and I really lean into the fact that, like, we are the biggest problem in our marriage. Like, I believe I'm the biggest problem, and she believes she's the biggest problem. We're actually united in our sinfulness and in our brokenness and neediness. So the more humility increases, the more there's a decrease in conflict and division. Here's the third thing. As we grow in humility, life becomes more exciting. It becomes more exciting. Here's why. Remember when you were little and you went to like a friend's house or, or to maybe to a lake house for the first time or to a, for, to a beach house or a vacation house for the, for the first time. And it just seems amazing and big and huge and majestic. But then maybe like 10, 15 years later, you know, you're bigger and you go back to that same house and it feels like tiny. And you're like, wait, this playroom used to be huge, and now it feels like a closet. And this yard used to feel like, you know, like a golf course, and now it feels tiny. And as you've gotten bigger, everything else begins to feel smaller, right? Um, and our queen, Emma Prather, reminded me of this great quote from G.K. Chesterton, where he describes something like this, but with humility, how the opposite happens, okay? Because as we get smaller... In humility, the world actually becomes bigger. Here's what G.K. Chesterton says. He says, how much larger your life would be if yourself could become smaller in it? If you could really look at other men with common curiosity and pleasure, you would begin to be interested in other people. You would break out of this tiny and tawdry theater in which your own little plot is always played, and you would find yourself under a freer sky in a street full of splendid strangers. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that God, who is full of glory and might and power, in comparison to him, you're very small, and yet you're very loved. And so in the freedom of love, you can actually move out into the world, not trying to make yourself big and pretending to be big like the Pharisee, but being small like the tax collector. And as you do, everything and everyone else around you becomes bigger and more exciting. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, love is hard, and it's hard because of pride. And if we are going to become even slightly less uh, self-involved and self-absorbed and self-important, we're going to need your help. And so, Lord, more and more impress upon us how lovely and big and majestic you are, that we might see ourselves and others rightly. Uh, Lord, send your spirit to help us do that, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.